welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are ready to begin Acts. And it shouldn't really require an extended introduction, uh, because if you are a Christian, you, are, you should be already familiar with the context. Uh, the book of Acts was given as a chronicle, uh, that is a written record of those actions uh, of those who saw and believed in Jesus Christ immediately following his resurrection from the dead and then continuing on for about the next 35 years. You you must be thinking, boy, this is a long book. Uh, Not really. Uh, No, we shouldn't expect Acts to contain everything that occurred in those 35 years, uh, but it will explain sufficiently what transpired and uh, that we might understand the development of the early church. In short... The human writer, his name is Luke, he he is going to, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, he's going to document how the early church, under the leadership of Christ's apostles, uh, how they pursue to fulfill the great commission uh, given by Jesus to them and to us. The entire book, we will find, therefore, is, is very evangelistic in tone. But the genre, or or that style of writing uh, that Luke writes in, it's actually more historical narrative. Acts records history. But its intent is, it's so much more than just recording history. Acts is also very ecclesiastical. Uh, That pertains to the function of, of the church, how the church functions. Uh, We're going to see that it shows how the early church then learned as they went, uh, sometimes by trial and error. They learned to function during this period in which the apostles lived. Uh, You heard that right. Over time, the apostles learned. So, so just as we see amongst Jesus' disciples during his life on earth, when, when he ministered with them and alongside of them, uh, we see that throughout the Gospels, expect to see a progression of understanding throughout the book of Acts. It, it was a period of learning and discernment. The early church did not have all the answers on day one when Jesus ascended to be at God's right hand. All they had for Scripture at, at the point in time in the writing of Acts 1 verse 1, all they had for Scripture at that point in time was the Old Testament. And consequently, through Jesus, uh, though Jesus' life, as described in the four Gospels, had already occurred... None of the New Testament has been written during the events recorded at the beginning of chapter 1. Yet most of the New Testament 
is completed by the final verse that is recorded in Acts chapter 28. So a lot transpires over this 35 years. And therefore, we are going to observe that there was a development and a progression of understanding as the Holy Spirit guides Christ's church over time through divine revelation. For this reason, uh, much of the content of Acts has been correctly classified as descriptive, that descriptive of what occurred rather than prescriptive for all churches of all ages. Uh, we aren't expecting tongues of fire to appear today on every, uh, on every celebration of Pentecost. Uh, in fact, we aren't told to expect that to happen. Uh, it, it almost never happens. Uh, it never happens. And we are not told uh, in the balance of Scripture to expect it to ever happen again. That phenomenon of tongues is described in terms quite the contrary by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he taught in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8 that Christians should actually expect the gift of tongues to cease. So those events at Pentecost are descriptive of what happened not prescriptive for every church of every age. And we'll grow to learn uh, that those things that we see in Acts, that, that we should expect to remain prescriptive for the whole church, for all eras of the church, are those apostolic instructions that are repeated in the general epistles. Those things which are repeated outside of Acts add validation to those things which are prescriptive for every church of every age. Make this note as, as, we, as we begin. Though the church is progressively learning, it isn't learning about sin, or, or that Jesus is divine, or, or that he was raised from the dead. Those essential doctrines are fully established during the life of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ on earth uh, as revealed in the Gospels. Those events have happened. So these believers at Pentecost, they're all true believers. But there are lingering doctrinal questions that they will learn to address over time. Boy, does that sound a little bit like you and me? Has your life in your new life in Christ not been a learning experience over time as, as the Word has revealed uh, things to us that maybe we didn't know previously? They learned over time just like uh, you and I have learned over time. As for the human writer who is named Luke, uh, he was an intimate traveling companion to the Apostle Paul during Paul's second and third missionary journeys, uh, whom Paul personally endorses in Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4. The authenticity and the canonicity, that means it's, it's proper place in Scripture uh, for the book of Acts has, has therefore never been credibly disputed. This is also because Acts is quoted extensively by early church fathers like Irenaeus and, and Clement of Alexandria, 
Irenaeus, who you have probably heard of, he was born in Smyrna. He was a disciple ordained by Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna at the time. Uh, What makes that significant? Well, Polycarp knew the Apostle John personally. And with the remarkable historical data that is documented in Acts, if this book were not perfectly accurate, it would have been quickly exposed as a fraud by the apostles and their counterparts and not enthusiastically endorsed by them as is actuality in the early church. They, they enthusiastically endorsed this book as being accurate. So there is no real question as to the divine authority of Acts and its proper place in the canon of Scripture. Sometimes we wonder a little bit uh, about different books of the Bible and how they come into uh, the canon, and and we think of old manuscripts and and how pieces of manuscripts are found. Folks, uh, a significant portion, probably a majority, I would say a majority of the New Testament can be replicated just through the dialogue between these early church fathers when they converse with one another. They wrote letters to one another quoting the books of the Bible, what the Apostle John, what the Apostle Paul, what Peter, and what Acts has said. You can replicate Scripture just by looking at the dialogue, uh, the remaining letters, the dialogue between early church fathers. Compared to that, just for a moment, imagine if Acts did not exist. If this were the case, the first exposure we would have to Paul would be his own introduction to the Galatians, where he writes this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from man nor through the agency of man, But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And without Acts, you would have to say, what? Who is this Paul guy and and where in the world did he come from? And the only other authentication available for Paul would be found in 2 Peter in chapter 3, where Peter writes, quote, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, the things is the new heavens and earth, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by God in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these things, in which there are some hard things to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." So so if Acts did not exist... You know, we, would, we would simply be befuddled by Peter's solid apostolic endorsement 
of all these Pauline epistles that we have, written by a beloved brother named Paul, of whom nobody knows where he came from. Perhaps even worse, and consider this, if we didn't have Acts, we would have no record of Pentecost or the giving of the Holy Spirit, no vision in Caesarea of the sheet coming down unto Peter, no sermon by Peter like I read to you earlier during our scripture reading, so no inclusion of Cornelius and the Gentiles into the church, there'd be no Jerusalem council. Basically, folks, without Acts, we have no church. What, would be left, uh, what we would be left with is some well, kind of butchered form of Judaism 2.0. It would still be mandating circumcision, dietary restrictions. They would cast off the epistles of Paul as being false. We'd still be observing Jewish feasts and festivals and Sabbath-keeping, etc., etc. Uh, essentially, we would still be under the Mosaic Law. Christianity would be an irrecoverably perverted form of Judaism. Impossible to practice because the Mosaic Law requires that there be a temple. That is a big problem for those who want to identify as Orthodox Jews today as they have no temple in which to practice their religion and do not know the grace of God in Christ. Consequently, the authority and the placement of Acts is essential to the Christian canon, the scriptural canon, and the holy Christian faith, whereby Paul proclaims, for by grace we are saved through faith. Perfect song choice today. There could effectively exist no Christianity without the authority of the book of Acts, but with Acts, this letter becomes the key that, that unlocks the door of understanding to everything else. It's a hinge between the Gospels and the Epistles. It's really very fascinating. If you don't accept Acts, you don't have Christianity. But once you have Acts you know exactly how the early church develops and how we possess our Bible today. The faith that the Lord's brother Jude said was once for all handed down to the saints. It's an impressive work, a hinge work between the Gospel of Luke and uh, the Acts of the Apostles and as I read from Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, uh, know that Luke has always been credited as the human author. Paul himself in, in 1 Timothy 5.18 takes a direct quote of Jesus found only in the Gospel of Luke. A laborer is worthy of his wages is the quote. And, and using that quote by Jesus uh, found in Luke's Gospel, he describes it as Scripture. So the Apostle Paul describes Luke's work as Scripture, and that was the Gospel of Luke, in a sense, 
part one, though it is a combined work. And now we read the first three verses of Acts today. Uh, what we possess is part two of Luke's work, and we will see that Luke opens by making a reference to his earlier gospel. Reading from the New American Standard, Luke writes, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Well, verses 1 through 3 serve as that link to the gospel of Luke. And Luke reminds the initial recipient, his name is Theophilus, uh, how he closed his first part of this message. Luke says, you know, my gospel, Theophilus, my gospel, it was, it was all about what Jesus began to do and teach during his life on earth, all the way up until the day that he was taken up into heaven. He could say, you recall, Theophilus, how that, that first account, it, it was all about how God's son lived a sinless life. He, he had to suffer on a cross. He died, and then afterward he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. So Luke, Luke essentially explains to Theophilus that, that this new work that Theophilus has just received is going to pick up right from where the first work had left off. It's a little interesting that unlike the Gospel of Luke, as we learned in our study this morning in adult Bible class, you, you look at things that are alike and things that are unlike when you're making your observation it's interesting that unlike the Gospel of Luke, there is no reference here to Theophilus by using the title previously ascribed to him as most excellent. We don't know why, but we do know that Theophilus already has in his possession the entire life of Christ as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. My suspicion is that after reading about the perfect righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the sinlessness of Jesus, that Theophilus may have told Luke that, you know, in future, in future correspondence, you know, you could, you could just drop that most excellent Theophilus stuff. That's garbage from this point forward. That's what I say when people... Refer to me as most holy reverend. <laughs> just, just drop that. Stop it, please. No. No. This may provide us a subtle hint that Theophilus has become a Christian and now knows that there aren't classes of Christians, but that there are only Christians. And Theophilus will soon learn through this 
this new series that picks up exactly from where the last one left off. Uh, this is not just a continuation of the story, but there is a major transition that is brewing. Verse 2 states that, that Jesus has now been taken up into heaven. So, so from the outset, there is a major change going forward. We're going to look at Jesus' ascension a little further when we get uh, to verse 9 in a couple weeks. But today we're going to concentrate just on what happened immediately before Jesus was taken up. Verse 2 says that Jesus had, by the power of, or by the Holy Spirit, he had given orders. He'd given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, so there were orders given to them. People always want to know, well, I wonder what these orders were. As if it remains some kind of long-lost mystery or something. Uh, well, among other things, the orders might have sounded a little something like, well, go therefore into all the nations and make disciples everywhere. You know, Jesus' orders aren't kept a mystery from the church. John Calvin correctly states, quote, they were instructed of Christ what they should do. As if Luke wanted to say that, that they, meaning the apostles, uttered not their own inventions, but they delivered or they practiced that sincerely and faithfully which was enjoined to them by their heavenly master. And what we were told to do by Jesus for the apostles, they acted out. And that explains, that explains what we see through the remainder of the 28 chapters. They act out. We should also, note, uh, also not find it odd when Jesus instructed them by the Holy Spirit. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is now going to pick up where Jesus left off. Christ's ascension, it marks the end. It's the terminating point of Jesus' earthly ministry. And just a few days later, it'll be at Pentecost, it will initiate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Luke here is just helping us to anticipate that, that there's going to be a handing off of the baton from Jesus to the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. And in preparation for, uh, of his apostles, now described as apostles, in preparation of his apostles, Jesus appeared to them repeatedly over a period of 40 days. We have, we have absolutely no idea exactly how many times, nor for how much time during these 40 days that Jesus appeared. Uh, we don't need to know beyond the fact that they did enjoy some meals together. So we would have to anticipate that probably some of these occasions lasted at least a couple hours or so. Uh, on at least five occasions seen in Scripture over 40 days. And there seemed to, to be only two stated purposes for the, for the 40 days between the Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost. 
The first one is found in verse 3, where it says, Jesus was with them speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. That, that was the topic at, at hand. The, the kingdom of God became at least a five-part sermon series by Jesus with his disciples. That's it. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Purpose number two of Jesus appearing was to document with many convincing proofs that he is alive. These will be our final two points uh, just for today. First, the sermon series given by Jesus. Luke's basically titled it, Things Concerning the Kingdom of God. People think, well, what in the world could that contain? What would be in that? Well, it's, it's not that hard, and, and you, you may be overthinking it. The, the kingdom of God was Jesus' default sermon. It, it was his go-to topic throughout his entire three-year ministry on earth. And you guys think that I'm repetitive. And what was another point we talked about in adult Bible class? Repetition. When something is emphasized. If you take your exhaustive concordance, that's a book that has every single word of the Bible in it, uh, and you look up the word kingdom, and you start counting at Matthew chapter 1, and you go through the close of the Gospel of John, Ufta. I started to count the number of references that Jesus made to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, which those terms are used interchangeably in Scripture. I just gave up. I can't count that high. Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 12, verse 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew, 12, uh, Matthew 13, and verse 24, This is a good one. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. What did the owner say? He said, ah, just let them grow together until the harvest comes. That time the reapers will come and they will separate the wheat from the weeds. So this is important. In these spiritual lessons, including the good seed and the tares, the wheat and the tares, the references concerning the presence of the kingdom of God describes the church age right now. God's kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus said in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is it's like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and, and this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. 
So, so God's kingdom is going to start really small at Pentecost, but it grows to be quite large over time. Here, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven describes our experience now. Uh, Luke employs the same parable, but refers to it as the kingdom of God. Uh, that's one way that we can discern that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are, are, are parallel uh, references describing the same thing. The Gospels use the two, changes, uh, the two phrases interchangeably. So, the kingdom is now, but, but the kingdom of God is also future. As Jesus told his disciples at the Last Supper, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. This and, and several other references appear to describe a future physical kingdom of God with Christ returning to rule on a new earth. Thankfully, uh, this material isn't that new for most of us here. Uh, Christians currently enjoy a spiritual manifesta manifestation of Christ's kingdom in the church. We've been transferred into his kingdom. And when Christ returns, his kingdom will be, well, the earth. Here's the question. Which manifestation concerning God's kingdom, the spiritual or the physical, the present or the future, was Jesus teaching his apostles about over these 40 days? Which one's he talking about? Well, the answer is Jesus teaches them concerning his immediate kingdom manifest in his church. Why do I say that? Well, it's not only because the kingdom now was their immediate need. That's what they needed. But Peter also verbalizes it in our scripture reading from Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. Uh, there he preaches to Cornelius and the Gentiles. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now... So Peter has grown in understanding. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And Peter continues by clearly articulating to Cornelius the gospel. That was, again, their immediate need. And he states, God raised Jesus on the third day and granted that he become visible, appearing, uh, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. P Peter saying, he appeared to us. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. We're looking at 40 days. And what did he order? Peter says, And Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. 
Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So after he arose and he spent time with his disciples, Jesus said, preach the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Why? Well, it's because this was their immediate need. And therefore, uh, consequently describes the actions of the apostles throughout this whole book of Acts. They are responding to what Jesus had taught them over those 40 days. The preaching of the gospel is how we enter the immediate kingdom of God, the spiritual manifestation of God. And it is this message of the kingdom of God uh, that is therefore preached all the way through this book until the closing verse of Acts where Paul is being held in prison and where we are told, last verse of the book, and he, referring to Paul, was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness unhindered. So this, this message concerning the kingdom of God is the one that we have at hand today. And we preach it with all openness, unhindered. You can have forgiveness of your sins today through Jesus Christ. And just like the apostles, we preach Christ. And if you have not accepted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, this is your immediate need today. An alternate idea that you might hear or read was that Jesus, you know, over these 40 days was giving you know, his apostles some special, you know, super secret, clandestine the instructions about some future kingdom of God 2,000 years into the far distant future. That, that is completely without merit. Completely without merit. People just make that up. And in actuality, that is the first question that the apostles posed to Jesus after his resurrection, we will see in verse 6. It's the same thing that they were concerned about at the Last Supper just a few days previous. You know, Lord, permit it that we can sit on your right hand and on your left. They're still carnal in verse 6, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And they're still thinking that their immediate experience is going to be Christ's physical reign on earth. Say, so can we start this now? I think that's the first question that they posed to him when he appeared over those 40 days. They hadn't changed a bit since the Lord's Supper. So Jesus completely brushes them off by saying, it is not for you to know the times or the epics, but what? But what will you be? The immediate need you will be my witnesses. 
So Jesus is definitely not instructing them about a distant future kingdom on earth, but the immediate spiritual kingdom which will begin in just a few more days at Pentecost. Over those 40 days, Jesus meets with them at least five times concerning the spiritual kingdom that we know will start about the size of a mustard seed, but will grow larger and larger throughout this book. A second and final reason given for Jesus' repeated appearances is so that the disciples will become completely convinced in, in his physical resurrection from the dead. You know, he didn't want them to be confused and think, you know, did we, did we just dream that? Oh, or, or think that they just saw an apparition of Jesus, or, or, or maybe, they were just, maybe it was just a bad day. And remember, there were still doubters lingering after Jesus had first appeared. There were still those who doubted after his first appearance. And therefore, Jesus meets with them repeatedly. When they're gathered together, Jesus ate and he lodged with them, as we'll see in verse 4 next week. And verse 3 assures us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. That's another thing he was doing over those 40 days. The resurrection of Christ, the convincing proofs, uh, the, the Greek language used uh, in that age was used in courtrooms exclusively to refer to extremely convincing factual evidence that testifies to reality and the truth. It's courtroom, courtroom language. We would call it irrefutable evidences. Convincing proofs refers to irrefutable evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. And the, and the passage assures that there were many of these proofs, and that he appeared multiple times giving proof, and the resurrection of Christ remains the central belief of Christianity today. And that's how the book starts. Everything we believe hinges on it. Everything we believe hinges on it. Uh, do you know what is going to happen, folks, after you die? Every single person here. Do you know what is going to happen after you die? Christians know. You are going to be raised physically from the dead, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, and you are going to face the judgment of God. You will either be found blameless by God through faith that Christ has suffered for your sins on the cross, that he took the punishment that you deserve. Then you will be found blameless on that day. You will enter into the physical kingdom of God then on earth, or you are going to be physically damned to hell under the earth. Some of you might be saying, well, I I don't know if I believe there's any life beyond the grave. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. You will be proven a liar on that day. The day on which, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Everyone will confess Jesus Christ as Lord on that day. Jesus and the apostles, ah, the apostles saw Jesus, they saw him and they touched him. Our closing reference passage is from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Apostle John, who was with Jesus, by the way, over those 40 days, he says this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's a reference to Jesus. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And, and we have seen, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John's saying, we're there. We saw it. We touched him. Thomas would say, I put my hand in his side. It was real. I touched him. It wasn't any phantom. It wasn't any bad dream. It didn't happen just once. It happened at least five times. And we were right there. He ate with us. He laughed with us. He charged us to preach this message across the whole world to all the nations. And if there are two essential elements that the apostles needed to know over these first 40 days, it's the exact same essential elements that we need to know today. First are the things concerning the kingdom of God now. We have a message that has to be preached. There is a resurrection. There is a conviction of sins by the Holy Spirit. There is a reconciliation with God through Christ's blood. There is a regeneration of the heart, making us alive to God, even though we were previously dead. And there is eternity with Christ on a new heaven and earth. The second one is just like the apostles. We need to experience and embrace a full conviction that what they saw over their, those 40 days was Christ physically raised from the dead. Everything that we believe, everything that we say, everything that we do hinges upon this point. Every, every act that the church does today is going to be influenced and impacted by what we just read. Do you believe the things concerning the kingdom of God the truths concerning the kingdom of God, if so, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to act like these guys act? 
And if you believe, at least you say you do, if you believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, are you prepared to warn others that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead where we will all stand in judgment? That is the message that the apostles are going to preach. And if the church doesn't get these two right, we aren't going to get a whole lot right. We'll just become a social club where we just kind of hang out and eat, eat potluck. And that's some of the problems we see across churches even to this day.